2: There has to be a recognition of the severe impact that this crisis is having on
3: disabled people in particular and I think there's just not that awareness there at the moment This isn't just a crisis, this is now an emergency We have people, when we've been talking in our focus groups talking about how they might take their own life because they don't want to sit and live in pain or winter because they can't afford to put the heating on
4: Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Fraser, Becky and Matt, your go-to pod for all things local climate action. This week's episode is about disability and energy, a vital and often overlooked aspect of the energy crisis.
1: Before we crack on with this episode though, just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who got in touch with us on Twitter, especially Chris Young who tweeted us to say, your podcast is brilliant and deeply thought-provoking.
0: So joining us today are two experts from leading disability charities. We welcome both Gemma Hope, Director of Policy from Leonard Cheshire, and Lizzie Green, Campaigns Manager at Sense. Together, they'll give us some insights into how disabled households experience energy, how the energy crisis is affecting them, and finally, what we should do to support them. Quite right. And I don't know about you both, we're we're recording this late August... Bit of an autumnal feeling in the air today. I mean, I know we're all in in Glasgow. Well, not not anymore, Fraser. You're even uh, you're on the east coast, but a bit of a chill in the air, and and the leaves are even turning. Kind of a they're kind of giving up a bit. They're a yellowy brown.
1: Do you know what Matt? It's absolutely nuts. My uh, my mum lives in London, and she was telling me that the trees on the streets around her, her have already started shedding their leaves, and it's happening here. I, I get what you're saying about the autumnal feel, and it's just so bizarre with the temperatures that we had last week or last weekend. It was absolutely nuts, the contrast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously with, you know, in the news, I think as the leaves start to change colour and we are, as we record two days away from Offgem announcing the the latest price cap rise, the two don't feel completely disconnected. Uh, And it feels like as the colder weather sinks in and the energy prices go up, um, this topic is going to gain even more traction than it already does.
4: Yeah, it has to. It has to. It's the sense of, The impending sort of the scale of of what's happening just now it's it's terrifying and it still feels like we're we're stepping stepping off the cliff edge a little bit here we still don't know what's coming next we still don't know what the support looks like or just how just how big this winter is likely to be
0: patrick our producer um one of our producers was pointing to this and sort of saying you know this feels a little bit like a pre-covid moment where the calm before the storm we know something's coming we're not quite sure how bad it's going to be. We're not quite sure what support is in place to help us get through it. That is exactly how I feel right now. We do have some support in place. In fact, depending on how you calculate this, it's around the £37 billion mark that was announced from February and then more latterly in May. But in fascinating analysis from the carbon brief, Simon Evans there pointing to this, the actual ultimate cost of energy, this uh, up into 2023 will be more like £180 billion
1: it's terrifying and and good on the carbon brief they always produce such amazing analyses that you know really break everything down but i think for me and and i I think the the kind of framing and looking at it in comparison to the COVID crisis an interesting one where i think there's an added dimension here is is not just the lack of knowledge but the amount of distrust and um anger that this is provoking And, and i see this because so i you know i am not as good on social media as the two of you you both are you know you way out strip me but i have a facebook account that's purely personal and so i don't i don't interact with it in a business or professional way at all and i see conversations that people you know friends family members people that are not involved in this space at all are raising the comments are all about there's a knowledge about the price increases there's a lack of knowledge about the support out there that doesn't even feature as part of the conversation, but overwhelmingly there is blame being laid upon the energy companies, those people making profits, and it's just I feel like there's a big spiral of distrust and anger that is coming out of this, and perhaps misinformation. I
4: think I think on that, Becky, I would I would say the, the misinformation points are really interesting one, and certainly a, a confusion about it. But I think for me, and not not just on the scale which we've spoken about separately. But for that reason, as much as it feels like you know the night before Furlough kind of thing, it also feels a little bit two thousand and eight. It feels like there's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of it's it's a it's an enormous thing, right? I I I think that the social economic implications are on that scale. We need to be thinking on that scale. But in terms of the the sort of the sentiment on the ground of a kind of people know that they're being shafted in this. They know that they don't have a responsibility in it yet are bearing the 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 brunt of it. And there's definitely it feels like a a sense of an appetite for something radical, some serious change. There's a worry about where is help? Is it coming? And certainly I think on the other side of that, that anger pushing much more towards this
0: cannot be the way that we go on. And it's important to say, Fraser, that, Some people are going to feel this energy crisis much more than others. So, I mean, of course we know that it's going to be the poorest households that are going to be hit hardest. Uh, Proportionally speaking, a much bigger share of their income is given over to to energy. And as those prices increase, the pain uh, increases too. But there's some fascinating work um, uh, from the Citizens Advice Bureau. They've just released a new dashboard, which hopefully we can... Put, put on our website too, which points to how certain demographics are being hurt the most. Um, and in fact, they're, they're measuring this in terms of people who are reaching out to the Citizens Advice Bureau. So in particular, single parent households, those from ethnic minorities, those with long-term health conditions, which is going to be the topic of discussion today, also those in private rental housing. So the, the help... Needs to target these individuals most. Yeah, it's entirely why
4: our, our idea of chuck four hundred pounds at everyone and hope for the best is
0: no way to run any kind of any kind of bailout or support. No, and and then to have a counter campaign to that of people saying, "Oh, please, you know, if you don't need that money, please donate it." And it's <laughs> like, well, that shouldn't be how we're managing. It. I mean, maybe I'm straying into the personal here, but that doesn't feel like a great way to target billions of pounds, giving it to people and then relying on them to donate it back to a a charity or individual of their choice?
2: It, it
1: doesn't at all. But do you know what? Even if we had a, a better scheme where that money was perhaps divided in a fairer way or more appropriate way, It's just not enough. It feels like, you know, for want of a better expression, putting lipstick on a pig. Um, Not that I have anything against pigs.
0: (laughs) Or or lipstick, for that matter. Or lipstick. But I think it's a a good analogy. Um, The the other frightening thing is about uh, people actually being able to access this money. So there was a piece in the BBC just today, again, we'll try to link to this, saying that more than 3 million households in Britain were still waiting to receive their £150 council tax rebate. Yeah. So and you know, predominantly
4: this- again, people from from those groups and communities mm. Exactly
0: the same people who you would argue need it need it most. So so Fraser, the important point on this is it's particularly the people who don't pay by direct debit. So yeah. 97% of those who pay their council tax, i.e. pretty much everybody, got, got the rebate. Half of them who paid it through other means, i.e. cash or cheque, whatever it might be, standing order, these have not received the rebate. The, the other thing that which is telling, and I'm hearing this, is, is another way that this money isn't reaching the people who need it. Hearing this through colleagues at South Seeds, a charity I, I work with on the, the, the south side of Glasgow, we help people who can't pay their energy bills. Hearing that the £400 non-repayable discount on energy bills, uh, which will be applied to everybody, as you, you mentioned Fraser, that goes to the bill payer. Now, actually, a lot of people in homes who um, may not be registered as the bill payer, but they're living there now, that, there can be a number of reasons for that. What They maybe pay their bills as part of their rent, or indeed they just never registered and they simply pay somebody else who is. That's a problem. That's a really big problem. So I'd like to get this across to the listeners. The level of support is one thing. Getting that support to other people is another. And these are, we've, I, I know there
4: have been a few, so Energy Action Scotland have highlighted this recently as well. Even support that is available is so, so tricky to, to access, you have the complications of the delivery of on energy bills, four hundred pounds, of one hundred and fifty pounds on council tax, but additional support that is available is also it's a it's a whole other thing. That seems like the access to the services is as as much a problem as the the services themselves or the the, the short handed services themselves. I would also like to put a little bit of context to this because I think Becky's point is an important one. For any of the listeners who don't know, I sit on I do. Fuel poverty work, Scottish Government. This time last year, we were worried about bills going to £1,200 a year. We were thinking how are the most vulnerable people struggling the most going to find an extra £400 a year at a time when the universal credit uplift had just been rolled back. You're now talking, you're asking people to find two, 3000 £2, £3,000 additional a year that they simply don't have and throw in 400 pounds. Even if you qualify for 1600 pounds, which is the maximum available support for anyone from, from UK government, that's still hundreds of pounds of deficit on today's price cap.
0: The, the other frightening thing here, Fraser, is is those that are in private rental accommodation, often those who are in lower income brackets are living in less energy efficient homes. Not so much if you're in social housing, that that, that can tend to actually perform better than private uh, rented. but. Uh, Another piece that came out, not just from the carbon brief, Becky, but also uh, ECIU, um, the Energy and Climate Change Intelligence Unit, basically found that if you live in a energy performance certificate rated C house, so that's pretty good, you know, I'd like to live in one of those houses, I aspire to live in one of those houses, Um, versus somebody who lived in F, which is pretty much right down at the bottom, apart from G, the difference for the average bill payer was £2,000, or will be by the end of this winter, £2,000.
1: Wow. We know this. Those who are living in the poorer homes are going to feel this the most. I do do want to come back to this idea of, though, how folk get that support. You know, Fraser, you mentioned up to um, £1,600 is available, you know, maximum. But presumably there are things that you need to know to be able to access that it's not something that's just as you said with the direct debit it kind of comes to you as a rebate there is there are challenges in well i think that we've discussed like challenges in the policies themselves and not enough being done but also challenge around how you access this and again for me this is another another example of policy where the onus is all going on the individual it feels very short term thinking it feels very kind of push everything out to individual households. And it brings me back to thinking about a previous episode of Local Zero where we had Rufus Grantham on, who was talking about new models to shift energy systems in a community that would tackle things like, um, like the energy efficiency of homes, that would tackle issues around local renewable generation that could potentially subsidize these costs, but would be doing it not by saying every individual has to apply for certain amounts of rebates or, um, you know, try and do things on their own, but looking at entirely new business models, entirely new ways of doing this at a local level rather than trying to make everybody an expert.
0: There's, There's a lot to say about that. I think my two immediate reactions to that are, um, one that came out of the, the House of Commons Committee for uh, Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy that released it two weeks ago, that basically said, if we throw money at this, uh, it doesn't solve the problem. But also like, where do you throw the money at? If you're looking at more structural change, obviously retrofit is a key one, but these energy advice services that actually inform people about what to do. And even if it's not what to do, it's about, well, you you know, these are the, this is what you can do. These are the kind of companies or organisations who could help. And that advice is massive. So South Seeds, we've found that in the last six months, nine months, our weekly number of appointments has doubled. I'd like to bring us on to the the topic of today, which is a a really important one, and one I don't think the media has maybe given enough time to, which is around disability and vulnerable consumers, uh, vulnerable households during this energy crisis. And there was a really telling uh, stat that I had to pull out for for a presentation I'm doing uh, soon, which is about excess winter deaths. This took my breath away. Excess winter deaths, which basically recorded as the deaths between December and March period, that are above the uh, average for the the months that precede that, are three times higher in the coldest quarter of housing versus the warmest. So you're three times more likely to die basically. And it has a massive health uh, impact upon physical, but also mental health. And typically each year, and this is work undertaken from National Energy Action, but also E3G, they looked at the, each year there's, this is pre-COVID around 30,000 deaths, excess winter deaths. Around a third of those, almost 10,000 are attributable to living in a cold home. Now, what I want to put to you two, We've likened this to COVID. I'm not qualified to estimate in any way how many people are going to you know, die or become very ill this winter. But this feels like a public health emergency. It is. And I don't feel like it's being treated treated as such. It's being dealt with as a sort of more of an economic problem rather than a health problem.
4: Yeah, but it absolutely is. It absolutely is. So we, I, I don't know that we need to reiterate the health impacts. We know what those health impacts are in terms of living in a cold home, in terms of the respiratory issues that, that causes. The the mental health, the isolation alone is, is is such a massive part of this that we don't give enough credit to. But there was there was news out this week, um, and I need to dig it out for the notes, around just how stretched the NHS already is. Now I don't mean to to take this away from health and make it about economics again, but we're we're talking about a health service that was Battered by two two and a half years of a pandemic already coming into a winter where COVID, I don't know if if you remember COVID. Do you remember COVID? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it hasn't yeah. it hasn't gone anywhere despite sort of how we're carrying on now. So we have a, an, an NHS and wider public services already already on their knees already. You know, people from those more more vulnerable groups, predominantly reliant on them. Far more people still that will need to access them. And I think there's a very long way. Of agreeing with you Matt I think you're right I think this is a, a, a massive public health issue
0: I think many listeners at this point would possibly be reaching for the uh, mute button and say okay that's enough guys like you don't need me feel any more anxious than I already do you know but the good news is there are charities out there we're going to ask them what the situation is and hopefully they can present a way forward
2: My name's Lizzie Green and I'm the Campaigns Manager at the National Disability Charity Sense. And the cost of living crisis is something that we've been working on a lot at the moment. It's obviously an an issue that's impacting disabled people
3: um, a severe amount, Um, so yeah, it's something we've been working on a lot. Hi, I'm Gemma Hope, I'm Director of Policy at Leonard Cheshire. Leonard Cheshire is a national disability charity set up to help disabled people to live, learn and work as independently as they choose. At the moment we're doing lots of work on the cost of the living crisis as that's the biggest issue affecting the disabled people we support and our campaigners.
0: Lizzie and Gemma, welcome to Local Zero. Thank you very much for joining us on this very special episode uh, during a very, very difficult time of the energy crisis. As we've Sort of set out uh, earlier in the episode is that um, disability and vulnerable consumers are often being overlooked. I would say by the mainstream media, um, and yet these these individuals, these households may very well be be the worst affected. So um, I just wondered if we could maybe begin with with Lizzie uh, coming on to Gemma. Is just your views on how disability impacts upon households' experiences of energy, and how critical affordable, reliable energy is to these homes.
2: Yeah, so disabled people are being severely impacted by the cost of living crisis at the moment and the the increase in prices. And, you know, it's something that we're obviously all impacted by, um, but disabled people in particular are kind of feeling the effects a lot more because of their circumstance. Um, For many, uh, full-time work might not be an option. And that also goes for um, family carers as well, who might be locked out of employment due to uh, caring responsibilities. Um, Many disabled people also face additional costs on a daily basis for essential, So this, for for disabled people, this isn't something new, it's just kind of adding to an already difficult situation. And our our kind of recent research actually showed that um, over 70% of disabled people are now in debt and nearly 40% are skipping meals. So those statistics, as well as the kind of the stories and experiences of disabled people um, are really telling us and painting a picture um, of the kind of, yeah, the severe impact and, and the really difficult situation that many people are facing.
0: Wow. So yeah. So obviously a, a very uh, dire situation, and as you say, I think that's very telling. You're already in a difficult situation before this energy crisis came along. Gemma, uh, from your perspective, uh, anything you, you'd like to add?
3: No, I think the experience of the people we support at Leonard Cheshire is very similar to what Liz has outlined. We know from our we did a poll um, just before the energy price hike, so this was before things have got even worse, which I'm sure we'll get on to talk to you. But then half of the people um, who responded to our survey said that they experienced extra costs because of their disability. And a third of people were saying that already at that point that they couldn't afford their energy bills and were going without heating. And just to give you an example of why disabled people's costs are a bit higher, there are a couple of different reasons. One is because many health conditions involve and really need an individual to be in a warm home, um, particularly people with arthritis, neuropathy caused by um, diabetes. So the house needs to be constantly warm, otherwise people experience severe pain. And, And one of the other key reasons is because of the use of specialist equipment. So people who have like mobility scooters or electric wheelchairs or use equipment like ventilators obviously need to charge those. It's not really optional and one person told us that they were spending 90 pounds a month just charging the their mobility scooter twice a week and obviously that price is going up, so now they're just charging it once a week and not getting out and about, not doing the shopping, not seeing their friends and becoming really isolated.
0: And that point about 21 degrees is really interesting because often we're hearing, you know, how, how can we tackle this energy crisis without any kind of structural change in our homes? One of the things I, I hear time and time is just turn the thermostat down to you know to 18. Don't, don't, don't live in the lab, lab of luxury. But as you say, for some households, that's not an option to maintain their health.
1: Well, it sounds like it's a double whammy as well, right? So, so on the one hand, there are more energy-intensive and expensive things that need to happen in the home, and on the other, as Lizzie you outlined, often a lot of people aren't able to work full time. They may have challenges in terms of income already. So, it, you know, it, I can see why this is really like with the price hikes that we are experiencing and about to experience really going to be a huge crunch for these homes. I mean, a topic that is, you know, that all three, all three of us, Matt Fraser and myself, passionate about is energy poverty. And we've run a number of episodes talking about energy poverty, but it strikes me that for the sorts of people that you're engaging with in your work and through the charities, like fuel poverty might be a much bigger issue for them. I mean, is, is this something that you're seeing? Is this something that's being experienced and, and is it becoming increasingly prevalent?
2: Yeah I think definitely for us it is something that we're hearing about through individuals and, and families. I mean one family we've been working with they are kind of full-time carers for their daughter who has a life-limiting condition and she has to have a breathing machine on throughout the night so there's the cost to kind of power that through the night. Um, she's also double incontinence so they have to buy incontinence pads but also have the washing machine on constantly to make sure there's clean bedding and clothing and then on top of that they have um, carers uh, who are in their home at night to support them and so they have to keep the the lighting the lights and the heating on so all of these kind of things are just sort of adding up and and this is a family that were kind of in debt previously so I think the main thing to recognise is that these are not luxury items that disabled people and their families can just cut out or choose between these are essential things you know wheelchairs have to be charged breathing machines have to be powered and it's a crisis kind of right now that we need a a long-term solution for rather than kind of just sort of sticking plaster
4: and on that on that Gemma so we we had this time last year just for for context the price cap was just about to rise to 1200 pounds a year and there was worry there and people who work around fuel poverty about about affordability at that level we're now looking at a price cap of three thousand five hundred pounds if estimates are are accurate just now in terms of the additional pressure that that's going to cause and the support available what is your feeling on on the outlook of this
3: Well, we had a focus group a couple of weeks ago with some of our campaigners. And frankly, when we talked about the additional rises, somebody told us that they were absolutely petrified. There isn't any spare money. They've made all the cost cutting that they can do. They're going without meals. They're not turning the heating on. They're sitting under obviously not quite now when we've had this heat wave, but, um, you know, earlier this year, they were already sitting under two duvets and wearing extra clothes to keep warm and really reducing or stopping their energy use as much as possible. So there's no extra money. So what happens to those individuals? Now, the government has introduced a package of support in May to help people with the extra costs for energy. So all households get £400 into the energy bills. There's £150 council tax rebate, but for disabled people, those uh, the additional support there is very minimal. For people who just claim personal independence payment, which is a benefit to make up for the extra cost of disability, there's just £150 available to offset some of those costs. If you're on an out-of-work benefit like universal credit, which some disabled people do claim, but a lot don't, there is £650 of extra support, but not everybody is entitled to that. And then finally, the government has a scheme called the Warm Home Discount Scheme to help people on a lower income over the winter and in times where it's really cold. But again, the government has revised its eligibility criteria this year, which removes 300,000 disabled people who claim PIP from it. So that's another £150 that they're not entitled to. So even though the support the government put in place in May is welcome, it's really a drop in the ocean compared to what's needed. And, you know, we really want to see urgent action, and as Lizzie said, long-term action as well, to really address this problem.
0: That's a really Im- important point. And what I'm getting from both of you, and also from from data that we presented from the Citizens Advice Bureau's uh, online portal, they've got a, a sort of stats hub there, that um, they know actually there's been an increase in in individuals asking for help about their energy bills way before Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, And this has been a a long run thing. Actually, really the outset of COVID was, and I should say the bills were, were rising even prior to that, but this has been a long run thing. So I just wanted to get your perspectives, maybe if we begin with Lizzie, about whether the scene was already set for a tough winter even before we saw gas prices spiral.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, as we've said, like disabled people have faced additional costs for a a long, long time. So many of the families we've been working with have been saying, you know, for them, it's just... Uh, something else on top of an already really difficult situation. We've seen, you know, social care services cut. Um, so during the pandemic, many disabled people didn't have the care and support that they needed at home or in the community. And I think as we move to winter, it is a really worrying situation. Um, as Gemma said, many of the the kind of the one-off payments that the government have provided have gone for some people directly onto debt that they've already accrued. This isn't going to stop. We need a we need a long-term solution for a long-term crisis. Really, otherwise, you know, people are really going to be uh, facing an even more um, difficult situation.
0: Absolutely. And I think from the, the CAB's own own data that they were, they were saying that the average debt for people are reaching out, I think, was around the 650 mark. Um, Gemma, I mean, we're hearing a lot about one-off payments. You've pointed out, you know, a number that are in place. But I'm just thinking about kind of longer-term structural investment that we could make in the homes of disabled families. Are you seeing much focus um, or, or experience much over the years around – Um, whether it's government, energy companies, charities looking to improve the efficiency of these homes. Is that something that is um, a topic of discussion or has it been largely neglected so far?
3: I'd say it's been largely neglected so far, even though like charities like Leonard Cheshire and the disability charities have done work before on energy and energy bills. I think the scale of this crisis has means that We now have to think about and put a lot more thought in our policy work around um, insulation of homes being a longer term solution. But yeah, the government isn't really talking about it. You know, we're in conversations with Ofgem and other organisations who now are starting to talk about longer term solutions. But it's not something that has been top of the agenda. So we would really want to see the government invest in a homes insulation programme for disabled people, whether they're living in their own homes, social housing, privately rented accommodation, because we know that that home insulation has such a huge impact on reducing energy bills. We also want to see uh, the government put in place a social energy tariff to (laughs) give lower rates of energy um uh, for, for energy bills to people who do who do have high energy usage because of all the reasons Liz and I have both outlined just to make sure that it's more affordable. I wonder as well, I mean it sounds very clearly that
1: the support that's there, it's a good start, it's nowhere near enough. A lot of what we've been talking about is feels like very blunt instruments of financial support as opposed to something that's more Targeted or more tailored to the needs of different sorts of people with different sorts of disabilities. And I'm wondering from the work that you've both been doing, whether you've got stories from from those people that you're working with. Like, are there any asks that are just not being heard? Like it feels very top-down right now. And actually, there are, I suspect, a whole lot of stories and, and a lot of individuals that probably are much closer to what those better solutions might look like because they're the ones that are living day in and day out, struggling with where, you know, the challenges that exist. And and as you said, they're not uniform, they're going to be very different. So, you know, when we talk about a better solution or a longer term solution, do you see there being an opportunity to create something that's less blunt? Do you see there being an opportunity to amplify the voices of people who are currently you know, experiencing some of these challenges and and take into consideration
2: what they're saying? It's definitely an opportunity. And I think, you know, there has to be a recognition of, you know, the severe impact that, this crisis is having on disabled people in particular and I think there's just not that awareness there at the moment you know we're we're kind of calling for sort of a long-term solution and and there's a few things that we'd like to see within that which are around kind of you know reform to the benefit system so that it really meets the needs of of disabled people and um, kind of benefits being uplifted in line with inflation Um, at the moment that's kind of not in line obviously benefits were uplifted earlier this year but it was in line with inflation last year and we saw that Um, It rose to 10% in July, so, you know, that that needs kind of looking at and reviewing. Um, We also want to see additional financial support to cope with the uh, increased energy costs. Uh, As as Gemma mentioned about the the warm homes discount, we're calling for that to be reinstated for disabled people. And thirdly, we want to see kind of more targeted support for disabled children and their families. So I think it is about that kind of recognition and responding to the very specific needs that, you know, disabled children and disabled adults, adults, those with complex needs have, and making sure that any plan that is, is drawn up by government includes those needs and really res- responds to it in, in the right way. And it can't be just a one-off, it has to be an ongoing thing. And that's something that is repeatedly, we're hearing from the families that we're working with, they need that that kind of consistency, really, and that sustainable solution.
0: So, I mean, the, the care, I think you raised the carer point earlier as well, Lizzie, just in terms of kind of providing support there. I mean, I'm, I'm recalling something from a couple of weeks ago where um, my mum basically cares for my my grandfather, uh, elderly, uh, increasingly needing support. Um, yeah, and he'd sort of reached out and said, "Look, you know, love, can I help you with the with the petrol?" And she'd normally be like, "Don't don't worry about it," but with where energy prices were, she'd maybe sit, sit down, you know, that might, might, that might help. And obviously supporting with food energy bills. And these things, this isn't just energy, this is a cost of living crisis. So I just wanted to get perspective. Maybe if we go to Gemma first and come back to, to Lizzie's, um, how the ripple effects from, from these homes and, and the families and friends who are supporting, uh, disabled households, should we be focusing support on on them too? So, you know, that, that kind of support network.
3: Yes, absolutely. And as you say, this isn't because it's a vicious cycle, basically, high energy bills means that there's less disposable income to spend on food. And there's also means there's less disposable income to spend on transport many disabled people aren't able to use public transport as accessibly as anyone else because it's just not accessible. So people either use taxis or they've got adapted cars. The adapted cars tend to be diesel. What's more expensive? Diesel than unleaded petrol. Which means then that people, we've heard that people aren't attending medical appointments because they can't afford to put petrol in their car. Um, We've also heard, in particular, a response to your point on carers. One of our campaigners employs a personal assistant uh, to help her, the personal assistant uh, can't afford the petrol prices has handed in the notice, which means that that individual is going out without the care that they need until they can recruit someone else. But because of how underfunded social care is, you know, it's really hard to recruit somebody on a salary that's competitive. So there's a complete, yeah, it's a vicious cycle of various different factors affecting each other. But absolutely, people who are caring for others whether you're an unpaid carer or whether you are doing that as a paid profession you know the cost of living is affecting those individuals as well and yeah that cost of transport and petrol is is still phenomenal and that really affects whether people can work and whether people get the care they need
0: and i I think it was research even from leonard cheshire which was cited by uh, the welsh parliament that pointed to i think it was a quarter of disabled people surveyed that They've been unable to find, um, unable to work due to inadequate social care support. I.e., that in part hadn't been able to secure the care that they that they so so very much need. Lizzie, anything just on that on that care point? Because I think this is you know if, if we're looking for policy support, targeted policy support, it's about it's not just about how much, it's about who gets it and how they get it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree with the points that have been made. Really, I think you know we've. Our, our research recently showed that the impact on carers mental health you know 75 percent of people said that it, it was impacting their mental health and um, we've heard from family carers who are just completely stopping going out stopping getting those uh, really small breaks that they had in the first place because they're trying to save money and um, which is obviously having a knock-on impact on on their well-being and mental health so it is yeah really worrying and absolutely the support should be for carers as well um yeah
1: I think this point about carers is, is such a critical point to raise and my uh, my mother-in-law is a is a paid carer and in fact my sister-in-law is as well and I'm astounded by how little valued in the sense of like I guess economic value in the sense of what they're getting paid for the sorts of work they're doing it's it's unbelievable and they have to drive between, to the clients or between, and that can sometimes be quite long distances. You know, if we think about people who are living out in rural areas, you can be spending quite a lot of time in your car driving between patients. And, you know, the the point that you raise is, uh, you know, it just, for me, it just kind of spirals into a much bigger challenge about how we value different roles in society and perhaps the way we're not, and maybe that's a topic for another pod because we could probably go down a, a huge, um, huge challenge there but i do i do wonder if uh you know we've talked a little bit about the price hikes the last few years have show have have been astoundingly different and there's been some really interesting work from the uh from the center for research into energy demand solutions or creds looking at the changing energy consumption as people have been pushed to homework i know in my job there have been there's been the opportunity to claim back rebates it's not easy it's not obvious so is that adding to the challenge as well you know not only are people not able to get out but it's increasing the the costs of what they have to do and being uh you know being in, in home all the time particularly people who might have to stay away, have to shield because of the challenges that COVID has brought for them. Are you seeing that as having kind of the, you know, we said it's kind of coming from both directions, but this feels like a third or even a fourth dimension as well.
2: I think there's kind of pros and cons, I guess, um, working from home does provide kind of accessibility in different ways um, and, and kind of flexibility for people who, who might need that have additional uh, needs. I think the main thing for us is that work is often positioned as kind of a solution to this problem, to the cost of living crisis. And for many people who have complex disabilities, full-time work or work just isn't an option. And, and you know, it's the same for carers, as I, as I sort of mentioned, that that isn't an option. So I think it's just important in, in the narrative there that it's not always kind of presented as a solution, it's not as, as kind of black and white as, as that. H-
0: have you got a sense, has anybody from from government or, or even the, the main political parties in parliament reached out to you and framed this as a public health crisis yet? In the same way that Covid was framed, uh, or at least uh, was eventually framed as a public health crisis, are you getting a sense of the urgency that people's health is at is in jeopardy and that action needs to be taken or or are we not even beginning to have that debate? obviously you're the two of the leading charities in this space
3: yeah, it's not really being framed by government as a public health crisis as there's an acknowledgement that people are struggling and more needs to be done, but their health impacts are really not being considered so for example. Um, We had one person tell us that they're diabetic and they can only afford bread and cereal to eat, which is making their diabetes worse, which means they've got to go to hospital more, which means they've got to spend money on transport, which means they've got less money. And again, this vicious cycle keeps going. And also this, I think Lizzie touched on it earlier about mental health. This is going to be and cause another mental health crisis in the country. You know, I don't think we've quite dealt with the aftermath and I suppose the ongoing situation with COVID yet in terms of mental health. But we, um, half of the people we spoke to, again, this was back earlier this year before the April energy price hike, half the people then told us that they were experiencing mental health difficulties because of the rising cost cost of living and how concerned they were about it. And, you know, this is very distressing, but we had people when we've been talking to them in our focus groups talking about, how they might take their own life because they don't want to sit and live in pain or winter because they can't afford to put the heating on. This isn't just a crisis. This is now an emergency and it yep. really needs to be tackled urgently. And as you say, it's got to be framed as a wider, you know, debate around health because the knock-on effects, obviously the devastating effects to individual, but then the knock-on effects to the wider health system, whether that's in social care or NHS, are going to be huge.
0: Yeah, and as we know that the NHS is under tremendous strain as, as we're you know at this moment in time as uh, we discussed this before you both came in, Lizzie, are we framing this energy crisis as a public health crisis? And if not, should we?
2: I don't think we are framing it as that, but I I think it very much is, and I think that. Um yeah it's impacting you know it's not just those practical things that people are struggling to afford it's not just the the equipment that they're having to cut out but as we've said it's it's the impact on on mental health as well but since we've actually been forced recently because the situation is so dire to kind of launch our own um support fund. so we're actually awarding a uh, thousand families with with uh, payments of 500 pounds um so that kind of shows it's it's something we haven't done before but it shows kind of the the situation and how extreme it is that we're, we're kind of stepping in where, but actually you know government should be providing that plan and 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 supporting the people that need it most yeah,
0: well, that's very important work
2: yeah and I I mean I want to just um to just
1: pause for a second on on what you've both just said and I think so often it's very easy to get lost in the kind of the the massive scale nature of the energy crisis the cost of living crisis and look at the big numbers and the big challenges, but when you humanise that discussion and you're talking about people thinking about taking their own lives or taking their own lives because of these challenges, I mean, that really, it really shows you just how dire this is and, and how much this is a problem that needs to be addressed and addressed seriously.
0: And it still can, right? It still can be addressed. Yes. It is not autumn yet. It is not winter. So- it
1: isn't. So, yes. <laughs> what should we do? <laughs> exactly. What What do we need to do? If, if the two of you were in charge of running the country, of setting the policy, what do we need to do short term? What do we need to do today? What do we need to do in the next year? And what do we need to do
2: in the long term? No pressure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, gu- I guess we've kind of touched on it, but we really need government to uh, announce that long-term support, that long-term financial support for disabled people, and to announce it fast. We can't wait for another 10 months until next year until we reach winter. You know, disabled people and their families are struggling right now, and for many people, it's only going to get worse. So we need to see those solutions. We need benefits to be uplifted, and we need to kind of reinstate the warm homes discount. And that's kind of what we're calling for as an organisation um, through our through our petition that we. Launched earlier this year.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, immediately what can be done? Well, reverse the warm home, the change to the warm home discount scheme. So that £150 is going back to those 300,000 disabled people, up rate benefits in our re- inflation, and review benefits quarterly as inflation keeps increasing. Yeah. Like it's in pegged to 3.1% last year. We're already at 10% inflation this year. So that needs to be reviewed regularly. So anybody who's in need on a low income can actually afford to be able to live and that's so important and so critical and then looking at this social energy tariff and seeing if that can be introduced quickly maybe that's more of a in the next six months but something that's a bit more sustainable is needed as we said earlier looking at home insulation again to again prevent this being a recurring issue and then what we asked our campaigners if you had 15 minutes with the new prime minister what would you ask them to do um, to tackle cost of living. And this is getting beyond the realms of our expertise. But they were saying a point that it's not right that energy companies are making this level of profit. And yet, if the projections by EDF was made yesterday, half of the country is going to be in fuel poverty. So they I say it's beyond our expertise as a disability charity, but there's something around fairness and how the system as a whole operates if half of half of the country is going to be living in fuel poverty by January. So something there needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah, and and, and maybe just, just before we wrap up, I think it's you mentioned before about the stress that this will place on the NHS during a pandemic. So somebody somewhere, I hope and pray, has done the calculations of what these higher energy costs might mean in terms of people's... Mental and physical welfare, and the strain and stress that will place on the NHS and the cost associated with that, because I would assume that nipping this in in the bud prior to winter would actually save money in the long longer term, and and we'll certainly need to rely on that. But is that is that an argument that you've you've heard or have been making at all?
3: It's not an argument we've heard, but it's an argument that really really does need to be made. Uh, it has to be a whole system approach to get into a bit of jargon terminology, because if we just treat it as, oh, the warm home discount scheme is administered by Bays, benefits administered by DWP, health is over here. If we don't join that system up, then we're just we're only going to get patchy solutions which aren't going to work for anybody, we're, never mind disabled people.
0: I could see Becky nodding because she's all about the co-benefits too. So,
3: oh, abs- absolutely,
1: and that was making me think of um, of an episode we ran, gosh, a couple of months back, uh, looking at a piece of work that PwC did, and it was a different context. It wasn't explicitly looking at people with disabilities or even segmenting people um, according to socio-demographics. It was looking at geography, but they were actually i think for one of the first times putting numbers to some of these co benefits and it was astounding we we could talk about this for so long and i think that the solutions that you mentioned are absolutely critical and hopefully hopefully folks listening to this pod will take heed and maybe we can start supporting some of those connections and the dialogues that need to be happening and some of the this broader you know cross system work that needs to be done but I guess what I really want to say is thank you so much to both of you for coming along. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thank you so much, Gemma. You've both given us a lot of food for thought and raised some very, very important and critical points that we all need to be thinking about going into this winter ahead. For now, I also just want to say thank you to everybody that's listening. You've been listening to Local Zero. If you haven't already followed us, please go to Twitter, find us, follow us. We're at Local Zero Pod. There's heaps of discussions going on over there, and uh, you know, make the connections as well with with any of the guests that you've heard and any other um, any other folk that are contributing to those conversations. And feel free to email us as well. If like me, you can't constrain your thoughts to you know just a few hundred characters, email us localzeropod at gmail.com we would love to hear from you there
0: excellent yeah and please if you can take two minutes to leave us a review on apple podcasts this helps us spread the word about the podcast and reach new listeners on these extremely important subjects like uh, the one we've been covering today but until next time thank you to our guests thank you for listening and goodbye
1: bye
4: Produced by the Spoken Media.